Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail... A warning, this story contains details... A warning, this story contains details that could disturb some viewers. A warning, our story contains graphic and distressing details about the children's... And a warning, this story contains distressing content. They are the words that alert listeners, readers and viewers about what's coming next. And they are coming up almost on a daily basis with the murder trial of Lauren Dickerson over the killings of her three daughters. She denies the charges, pleading insanity and infanticide. The South African family had only been in Timaru for a week when the killings happened. New work colleagues and friends have been giving evidence in the High Court in Christchurch. Neva Chittick was there, and a warning this story contains distressing content. But critics say the warnings are not enough. They are calling the coverage gratuitous, obscene, salacious. Some of the levels of detail about exactly what this mother did to her children um, to end their lives, it doesn't help anyone. So when does information for the public good turn into torture porn? And what about the individual's responsibility to pick and choose? There's a media smorgasbord out there and... You know, you can binge on the smorgasbord or you can just take a few chips and a few shrimps, you know, yeah. and, and regulate yourself to a certain extent. More from news boss Richard Sutherland soon, and we'll hear from court blogger Jake Kenny. First, though, torture porn and bonkers are how documentary maker David Farrier describes our coverage of the Lauren Dickerson trial. And that's from someone who's been living in L.A. where quite frankly, live news is over the top. I think the same thing. I mean, when I think America, I always think of the police car chases that are live streamed for everyone to watch. Mm. That's sort of, you know, that's the extreme example of it. You're watching every second of a car crash and that might crash at the end and everyone might die or that, you know, the police might catch them. That's sort of what you think of with America. But yeah, in New Zealand, it just seems to be, especially with this most recent trial, even a delight in the way the facts are delivered. And I almost, I think of sort of the rise of true crime podcasts and true crime documentaries on the likes of Netflix, or even dramatizations like, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmer dramatization on Netflix, where it's more than just reporting the facts, it's kind of delivering them and the sort of the sordid details that are of no particular use to the public, sort of delivering them in a way which is really attention grabbing and ways to gleefully kind of draw you into some of the sordid details. And it's those sordid details that are just on higher repeat. I mean, you can't avoid stuff at the moment without another headline from this current trial of things that are just really emotive and extreme and clearly just there, in, in my opinion, for, for clicks. You talk about in your article that we've got a bonkers approach to crime reporting and the level of graphic detail we revel in. Are you talking about the media here? Yes, I I am. I've noticed a few outlets here online and um, on the 6pm news just leaning into some of the really extreme details. And it's complicated to talk about because I'd love to give you some examples of things I've heard, but I don't want to do that now. I mean, in my Webworm piece, I sort of boiled down a couple of key details that I thought were really shocking to be distributed at the 6pm news as people are eating their dinner. And in doing that, I had a bunch of readers write to me and say, oh, look, we didn't need to hear that even in your newsletter. And I agree, like some of the levels of detail about exactly what this mother did to her children um, to end their lives, it doesn't help anyone. And 
I also had a number of my readers get in touch with complaints they'd made to various newsrooms and those newsrooms replies to them sort of justifying their reporting. And the, the common thing being is it's an open court. This is all um, open to the media and therefore um, for us to report to the public. So everything goes. But I just think New Zealand needs to sort of step back a little bit in some newsrooms and sort of say, hey, like, what is for the public good here? You know, what is important for people to hear? This is someone who obviously has some severe mental health problems and to put some context around it and not just go through step by step how this horrific killing happened as if it's a you know Netflix true crime show you say that we should cover these trials so what is acceptable you know what detail is acceptable do you think I think there's a way to talk about a case and the violence involved and the motives involved without reveling in some of the extreme details that will never leave your brain once you've heard those details. Um, I think context is really important. I think knowing the bigger picture is important, but it's more just the really intense one-liners that seem to be coming out about extremely graphic images that I know they're never going to leave my brain. I don't think they'll leave a lot of people's brains. And it's an incredibly complicated conversation. And I can't pretend to know what the exact level of balance is in all of this. But when you're live streaming every single detail of a, a trial on a website, and those details are just constantly being spat out, and then also turn into separate news stories, I think that becomes irresponsible and ultimately pointless for the public good and just very good for generating clicks because people will click on those headlines because that's what we do. We sort of, we leer at the car crash as we drive by. Well, that's the thing though. And isn't it, David, because people have a choice here. They can choose to read about this or they can choose mm, to switch totally. off. And the other part of it is that people are warned, readers are warned before mm -hmm. the article begins or if they're watching it or listening, they get a warning that um, they may, you know, that they're about to watch something that could be quite graphic or disturbing. And then at the end of the piece, there's a, a helpline which gives details for people if they I, look, feel disturbed. I, honestly, I, I think that that is great. It's great to have warnings, and I'm very glad that they're there. I also think in some ways it's a cop-out, and I fell into this trap myself. When I was writing about this, I wrote in my piece, um, Trigger Warning, I'm about to actually talk about some of these things that are being reported. And I had a number of readers write to me saying, you know, that did no good. I'm, I have eyes. The way you read things, you jump ahead, you, you read those sentences, and they're suddenly happening before you even know they're happening. And I think on the 6 p.m. news, if you're saying certain details, you can say trigger warning. But you hear that a lot. But then in this particular case, it's been reported. Some of the things I've heard uh, news readers um, and reporters saying, um, a, a trigger warning isn't enough. I think there needs to be a decision made with some of these details. And again, it seems so silly because I can't say what those details are. I think there can be a decision to just not include them because I think some of it just feels titillating and ultimately pointless. So what is it like to be the eyes and ears of the court and report on it virtually in real time? Well, Jake Kenny is the court reporter for the Christchurch Press. He's there every day at the Lauren Dickerson trial. But this case is different to others because he's blogging it. The blog is supposed to provide a sort of an eyes and ears inside the courtroom 
almost to the minute it's happening. We're trying to give readers the opportunity to to feel like, I guess, they're there themselves in a way. Is it the first time you've done it, Jake? It is. It's certainly a lot different in ways. Of course, we have our own media guidelines in court, which prevent us from reporting anything that happens within 10 minutes. So if something is said in court, uh, media within court still have to wait 10 minutes before we can report anything to give lawyers and the judge any opportunity to suppress things they think might be sensitive. Do you have a discussion with the lawyers and the court staff in the morning and they kind of give you a heads up that there might be sensitive information coming up during the day? Yes, they're probably getting sick of me already because each morning I will go and do the rounds just to, just to check what the day's evidence is going to provide. And some days they'll say, no, you, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing sensitive today or there shouldn't be. Yeah, I'm filing updates as we're hearing evidence, obviously with a 10-minute delay, but it's constantly sort of as evidence is coming through. So I need to be aware uh, mm. what, what to look for at the start and at the end of each day. So That's high-pressure stuff. It's intense. It is. Um, I know the things that we hear at times that may raise those alarms or, or have some concerns about reporting. So if that's the case, I'll just hold fire on them until I can seek clarity. Um, and if there's anything I'm in doubt about, I just won't report it until it's safe to do so. I think definitely uh, the priority is to be accurate and within the bounds of um, what we're allowed to report rather than speed. Obviously, it's great to be both, to be fast and accurate, but I think the accuracy and um, being sensitive and, and adhering to these things is is, is king, really. It's, it's, it's most important, in my view, at least. We know that there are rules, and actually I'm talking to Richard Sutherland about that, but do you have extra rules as a as a blogger? No. It's it's basically just that 10-minute guideline yeah. rule. So it's, it's when someone starts speaking in court. So from the moment they open their mouth and begin delivering a piece of evidence, it's 10 minutes from that point. What kind of response are you getting to your blogging? Look, a trial as confronting as this one is going to have uh, mixed reactions regardless. People have been very positive about the method, about the blog, but we've had mixed mixed reviews about, I think, just the sensitivity of this trial. It's an extremely confronting trial. The detail of it really does just, just smack you in the face, especially uh, on the first day. So on that day, were there any times when you thought, oh, this is just too gruesome? To, to publish. We had those discussions prior, yeah, and so there, there has been some information as part of the trial that we, we haven't published and that no media has published uh, because it goes into just a little bit too much detail. And We had very uh, robust discussions prior. We, we knew what we were going to hear before we heard it, so we'd all had media representatives and, and my editors and myself had very robust discussions about what we were comfortable with reporting and Obviously, unless things are suppressed by the courts themselves, most of the time we feel it's the reader's right to hear and see what the jury does and what we do because it's, it directly relates to the decision the jury will make by the end. And um, we believe the public deserves to know that and have as much information as possible as to what, why and how a decision was made, what verdicts were returned. But at the beginning of the trial or at the beginning of some days, there will be things that are suppressed and we don't go there. Mm. Um, and even with some of the details, we may report them, but in a perhaps a slightly more uh, sanitised way as to not um, be too confronting or too gruesome to consume, I suppose. I've always been a big believer in let the audience decide. 
Richard Sutherland is the chair of the Media Freedom Committee and head of news at RNZ. A lot of the criticism is coming from people who are upset about the gratuitous in their eyes level of reporting that some organisations are doing. In my role as the Media Freedom Committee chair, you know, I have to speak on behalf of all the media organisations and I think the best way to approach this is let each media organisation do what it feels comfortable doing and you're giving the audience a variety of options to choose from as to where they get their coverage. And you get to know very quickly that, okay, Media Outlet A will give me everything down to the very last detail, and Media Outlet B might be a little bit more reserved. Um, I think that media plurality issue is really important. Um, that said, everything has to be done within the rules of, of, of the law of the land, mm. and no one's suggesting that in any... Uh, serious news outlet is going beyond, you know, um, its reporting in terms of breaking suppression orders, et cetera, et cetera. And remember that judges have a lot of leeway in what they can suppress. So I'm quite heartened that the judge in this case hasn't spent a lot of time suppressing a lot of stuff uh, because I think that there is an awareness amongst the judiciary in this country that what goes on in the courtroom needs to be as accessible as possible to as wide an audience as possible because that's what part of being a, a secular liberal democracy is. What do you mean by media plurality? Well, just that there's many different media voices and if we all were in lockstep reporting the same things in the same way, that would get very boring very quickly. Mm. Uh, I think it's always good to have a vibrant media ecosystem where some people are doing some things over here that get a lot of people upset and other people are doing safer things over here that um, you know that more members of the audience may be comfortable with. But I think if you just had this blanket rule that we're not going to do X and you lowered the bar on what people could report to the, to the point where everything just becomes almost meaningless, I don't think there's any nutritional value in doing that for the, for the audience. I mean, the days of, okay, I'm going to read the morning newspaper or I'm going to listen to the midday news or I'm going to watch the six o'clock news and those are the only outlets that are available to me, that made it a lot easier, I think, in, in some regards. Now we have a lot more media choice. Mm. And, you know, as a consumer, the the audience needs to perhaps be a little bit more engaged and aware of the types of news that they're getting and where they're getting it from. What do you make of the coverage of the Lauren Dickerson case, which is the latest case that there has that has kind of triggered people, hasn't mm. it? Yeah, look, I think there are certain cases that, for whatever reason, attract a lot more attention than others, and I can't put my finger on why this case in particular has um, generated the attention that it has, and I don't really feel... Uh, comfortable sort of trying to overanalyze why, but if you look across the the media outlets that are covering this trial, there is a there is a broad range of ways that we're doing it. You know, some um, outlets are live blogging almost everything that they can from court. Uh, others are taking a different approach. Um, for example, you know, at RNZ we had a lot of internal discussions about the level of degree to which we were going to describe some of the things that came out in court, and we landed on a place that was perhaps a little bit more conservative than other organisations have been. Part of that was driven by the view that, um, particularly for our broadcast audience, you know, if you're listening to something at three o'clock as you're driving the kids home from school and something comes on, you don't have a lot of time or a lot of choice to, to move away from 
from from the bulletin. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were very conscious about that to a certain extent. Whereas if you're reading something on your phone, um, it's more of an active choice by you to keep reading. You know, and if you're presented with a warning at the top of a story that hey, there's graphic content here again, and it comes back to what I said earlier about the audience having to take some degree of responsibility about what they consume, then you can choose. Okay, well, actually, you know what? I'm not going to read this. Do we need to really know the details of how these three little girls died? Yes, we do. It's just the level of detail that various media outlets choose to go down to. And and remember, the judge in his or her court can make suppression orders if they feel that there are things that are, that need to be suppressed for whatever reason. So um, if the judge isn't going to suppress stuff, then you know my default position is that media organisations can report what is said in open court. My default position on most things is that transparency is really important in a, in a, in a functioning civil society. And when you try to take that away, yeah. although there might be uncomfortable instances, that is just part of the price that you pay for being in, a, in an open society. And, you know, open is good, closed is bad. You don't want a few editors making too many important decisions about what you see in here. And that's why we're very reluctant to self-censor ourselves. What are the rules? That's a very broad question. Uh, there are plenty of rules. For example, you know, when the court goes into, say, court goes into chambers to discuss matters relating to a particular case, you can't report what happens in chambers. You can have name suppression. Uh, you can have suppression on witness identification. You can have suppression on witness testimony. By and large, though, I think the courts in this country are pretty good about having an open stance and an open posture to the media and, and to the to society in general. I think we do a lot better in terms of media access in this country than we media in other countries do, certainly even in other um, Western-style democracies. What's your relationship like with the judges? Because I know that you've just recently had a, a meeting with them, which you have from time to time. Does something like this come under discussion? Yeah, I mean, we have regular meetings with the judiciary. There's a media and courts committee, which um, which meets a couple of times a year, and when we get in a room for a couple of hours and have a chin wag and raise any issues that we may have as the media and uh, and they may have as judges. In the most recent meeting, there was discussion about this particular case, mm-hmm. um, but it was not a acrimonious discussion by any stretch of the imagination. It was a measured and well reasoned debate about the issues, and there's an acceptance that. The media is going to report stuff, and sometimes that stuff is going to be really unpleasant. Okay, you've been a news boss for a long time, Richard. Has the media become more influenced by what is happening overseas, overseas reportage of gruesome um, incidents, murders, grisly court cases? I don't believe so. But I caveat that with the um, line that I may have become desensitised. I don't know. I mean, I I don't feel like we are being overly gratuitous and I don't believe that we are reporting stuff now that we wouldn't necessarily have reported 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think 
it comes down to there is more media available, so there are more opportunities to see stuff. There's more volume of it out there. Yeah. What do you make of, of, of David Farrier's criticisms of the coverage of this and also what he's saying about New Zealand, having lived in the US for quite a long time, he kind of says that our coverage of it is bonkers. Uh, look, I know I know David. I've worked with him. He's a, he's a good guy and a good storyteller and a good journo. I would question his characterisation of us as being bonkers. I think that if you look at some of the reporting in other countries, I don't feel like we are ahead of the pack in terms of the level of detail that we go down. I mean, the United States, in my view, has much more detail, much more what many back here would consider gratuitous storytelling. But again, I come back to it being, to a certain extent, the audience's responsibility to decide yeah. what they're going to listen to, he, what they're going to read, what they're going to watch. Sure. He One of the things he says, he quotes um, an editor's response to a complaint about what a reader said was was gratuitous reporting. Uh, This editor said, our role is not to withhold what has gone before an open court. If you object to what was put before the court, you would need to take that up with the Ministry of Justice. Is Is that the kind of response that you would have? I would probably be slightly more nuanced in my response. I mean, I would agree that if it's said in open court, it's open to be reported. And the default position should be we will report it unless we think there's good reason not to. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benj. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Richard Sutherland, Jake Kenny and David Farrier. Kakite. Kite.